0: In my first four lectures in this series, I explored the Lake School of English poets with particular reference to the figure perceived as the leader of that school, William Wordsworth. Then last month, I turned to the so-called Cockney School, the London poets and prose writers in the younger generation of English romantics, most notably Lee Hunt, John Keats and William Hazlitt. I perhaps should have called this final lecture the Satanic School, because that was the name given to the circle that emerged at the same time during the Regency years around the charismatic figure of Lord Byron. But I didn't want to give the impression that I'd be lecturing about black magic for fear of attracting the wrong kind of audience. (laughs) Besides, Byron is such a towering figure that he stole the title and most of the lecture. My apologies accordingly to particular fans of P.B. Shelley, whose voice has not been much heard in this lecture series, other than via my reading last month of his sonnet Ozymandias. He will, however, make a cameo return appearance in the closing moments. The paradox of Byron is that he was both the most romantic and the most anti-romantic of poets. There are times when his tone is almost indistinguishable from that of Wordsworth communing with himself and nature in the Lake District. All heaven and earth are still, though not in sleep, but breathless as we grow when feeling most, and silent as we stand in thoughts too deep. All heaven and earth are still, from the high host of stars to the lulled lake and mountain coast, All is concentrated in a life intense where not a beam nor air nor leaf is lost, but hath a part of being and a sense of that which is of all creator and defence. That's from the third canto of Byron's Child Harold's Pilgrimage and the phrase thoughts too deep, undoubtedly an echo of Wordsworth's thoughts too deep for tears in his Immortality Ode. Again, Byron, I live not in myself but I become a portion of that around me. And to me, high mountains are a feeling. It really could be Wordsworth. And yet his satire, English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, written out of allegiance to the satirical rhyming couplets of Dryden and Pope, writing a century before, guise the Lake Poet quite unmercifully. The simple Wordsworth is said to be dull, an apostate from poetic rule who both by precept and example shows that prose is verse and verse is merely prose. As for Samuel Taylor Coleridge, he is the master of turgid ode and tumid stanza. This teasing vein of anti-romanticism continues throughout Byron's sprawling and hilarious comic epic Don Juan. We have seen in earlier lectures how the French Revolution was a formative influence on Wordsworth and the first generation of romantics. So we could legitimately speak of this as the age of revolution in poetry. Edmund Burke, you may recall, described the French Revolution as the most astonishing that has hitherto happened in the world. And Charles James Fox called it the greatest event that has ever happened in the world and how much the best. Now a great event is a kind of spectacle and the human response to a great spectacle can indeed be astonishment, Burke's word. And it is emotional responses whether to political events, the wonders of the natural world or to any human encounter involving strong feeling. We already have seen that word feeling in Byron whether it's a love affair, a death, an act of sympathy. These are the things that the romantics were most interested in. Remember, Wordsworth defined poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Byron, analogously, called poetry the lava of the imagination. That is to say, a volcanic eruption of passion into words. In the light of this, I'd like to suggest that a useful term with which to characterise this period of extraordinary innovation in poetry would be the age of sensation. The word itself underwent some intriguing developments in the period. The primary meaning of sensation during the 18th century was, to quote the scrupulously detailed definition of the Oxford English Dictionary, an operation of any of the senses, A psychical affection or state of consciousness consequent on and related to a particular condition of some portion of the bodily organism or a particular impression received by one of the organs of sense. 18th century philosophers were especially interested in how such sensations operated. David Hartley, after whom Coleridge named his eldest son, proposed that sense perception and the association of ideas in the mind worked through a mysterious process of internal vibrations. The Scottish Enlightenment philosopher Thomas Reed explored the physicality of the process. When I grasp an ivory ball in my mind, I feel a certain sensation of touch. John Keats picked up on that idea in his letters, suggesting that one of the functions of the poet is to imagine the sensation of what it might be like to be, say, a billiard ball. Keats, of course, trained as an apothecary, and the medical theory of the time was also busy exploring the relationship between bodily sensations and the brain. Thus, Dr. John Abernethy, a distinguished surgeon, in his Surgical Observations of 1804, he said his sensations were such as would induce him to believe that his brain was loose. <clears throat> A closely related meaning of the word switched the emphasis from sense perception to mental apprehension, the realisation of some new feeling or insight in the brain. Coleridge in his Biographia Literaria, proposed that it is the prime merit of genius so to represent familiar objects as to awaken in the minds of others a kindred feeling concerning them and that freshness of sensation, which is the constant accompaniment of mental, no less than of bodily, convalescence. The therapeutic dimension of poetry is interestingly suggested there by means of that word convalescence. But there also emerges in the period a new meaning of the word, an excited or violent feeling, a strong emotion, for example of terror, hope, curiosity etc, aroused by some particular occurrence or situation. The production of violent emotion as an aim in works of literature or art a strong impression, for example, of horror, admiration, surprise, etc., produced in an audience or body of spectators. Thus, in 1818, the third of the lake poets, Robert Salvey, wrote in a magazine article his death produced what in the phraseology of the present day is called a great sensation. That phrase, the phraseology of the present day, clearly signals that this is a new meaning of the word we find Lord Byron using the word in the same sense around the same time, also as it happens with regard to a character's death in Don Juan. His death contrived to spoil a charming cause, a thousand pities also with respect to public feeling, which on this occasion was manifested in a great sensation. A few years before, Byron wrote to the highly intellectual young woman Annabella Milbank, would become his wife with disastrous consequences the great object of life is sensation to feel that we exist even though in pain it is this craving void which drives us to gaming to battle to travel to intemperate but keenly felt pursuits of every description whose principal attachment is the agitation inescapable from their accomplishment So see how Byron moves there from the idea of sensation to the notion of an exciting mental agitation. Now, the most popular literary form of the age catered to exactly this taste for sensation and delicious agitation of the nerves. We are reminded of what that form was by another letter of Byron's written when he was in exile in Venice. I am going out this evening in my cloak and gondola, there are two nice Mrs. Radcliffe words for you. Mrs. Radcliffe was, of course, Anne Radcliffe, queen of the Gothic novel, whose hair-raising stories, such as the mysteries of Udolpho and the Italian, captured the imagination of many a young lady. Moralists thought that the extreme nervous sensation provoked by Gothic novels, together with their salacious matter, was corrupting girls and threatening the morality of the nation. A delicious caricature by James Gilray parodies this argument. Here are some ladies reading Tales of Wonder Gothic novels and notice the sexual abduction that is apparently taking place in the picture on the wall of course, Jane Austen had tremendous fun with young girls' taste for the Gothic in her first completed novel, Northanger Abbey. Sit back and listen to this wonderful passage. The following conversation, which took place between two friends in the pump room one morning, after an acquaintance of eight or nine days, is given as a specimen of their very warm attachment and of the delicacy, discretion, originality of thought and literary taste, which marked the reasonableness of that attachment. They met by appointment, and as Isabella had arrived nearly five minutes before her friend, her first address naturally was, "'My dearest creature, what can have made you so late? "'I have been waiting for you at least this age.' "'But my dearest Catherine, what have you been doing with yourself all this morning? "'Have you gone on with Udolpho?' "'Yes, I have been reading it ever since I woke, and I am got to the black veil.' Are you indeed? How delightful. Oh, I would not tell you what is behind the black veil for all the world. Are you not wild to know? Oh, yes, quite. What can it be? But do not tell me. I would not be told on any account. I know it must be a skeleton. I'm sure it is Laurentina's skeleton. Oh, I am delighted with the book. I should like to spend my whole life in reading it. I assure you, if it had not been to meet you, you, I would not have come away from it for all the world. Dear creature, how much I am obliged to you. And when you have finished Udolpho, we will read the Italian together. And I have made out a list of 10 or 12 more of the same kind for you. Have you indeed? How glad I am. What are they all? Oh, I will read you their names directly. Here they are in my pocketbook. Castle of Wolfenbach, Claremont, Mysterious Warnings, Necromancer of the Black Forest, (laughs) Midnight Bell, Orphan of the Rhine, and Horrid Mysteries. Oh, these will last us some time. Yes, pretty well. But are they all horrid? Are you sure they are all horrid? <laughs> oh, yes, quite sure. For a particular friend of mine, a and Miss Andrews, a sweet girl, one of the sweetest girls in the world, has read every one of them. <laughs> well, of course, we don't often think of Jane Austen in the context of the romantic movement, but we should remember that she was born just a couple of years after Wordsworth and Coleridge and that she began writing her novels in the revolutionary decade of the 1790s when the novel of sensation was all the rage. She is, along with Lord Byron and the wonderful Thomas Love Peacock, whom I wish I had had more time to talk about, she was, with them, one of the great satirists of Romanticism. Her acute consciousness that the Regency period when she wrote her mature novels was the literary age of sensation is on full display in her last two books. Having parodied the sensationalism of the Gothic novel at the beginning of her career, she turns to romantic poetry at its end. Here is an exceptionally interesting passage in Persuasion begun in late 1815 and finished by August 1816. First, Austen sets up the scene. While captains Wentworth and Harville led the talk on one side of the room, and by recurring to former days supplied anecdotes in abundance to occupy and entertain the others, it fell to Anne's lot to be placed rather apart with Captain Bennick, and a very good impulse of her nature obliged her to begin an acquaintance with him. He was shy and disposed to abstraction. He was evidently a young man of considerable taste in reading, though principally in poetry. And besides the persuasion of having given him at least an evening's indulgence in the discussion of subjects, which his usual companions had no concern in, she had the hope of being of real use to him in some suggestions as to the duty and benefit of struggling against affliction, which had naturally grown out of their conversation. Captain bennett has had his heart broken. Then Jane Austen writes one of the longest sentences in her entire oeuvre, capturing the breathless enthusiasm of the reader of romantic poetry. For though shy, he did not seem reserved. It had rather the appearance of feelings glad to burst their usual restraints, that idea of strong feeling again, and having talked of poetry, the richness of the present age, and gone through a brief comparison of opinion as to the first-rate poets, trying to ascertain whether Marmion or the Lady of the Lake were to be preferred, and how ranked the Jower and the Bride of Abydos, and moreover how the Jower was to be pronounced, he showed himself so intimately acquainted with all the tenderest songs of the one poet, and all the impassioned descriptions of hopeless agony of the other. He repeated with such tremulous feeling the various lines which imaged a broken heart, or a mind destroyed by wretchedness and looked so entirely as if he meant to be understood that she ventured to hope he did not always read only poetry, and to say that she thought it was the misfortune of poetry to be seldom safely enjoyed by those who enjoyed it completely, and that the strong feelings which alone could estimate it truly were the very feelings which ought to taste it but sparingly. That is the problem of Romanticism in a nutshell, and Anne goes on to suggest that Benwick should include a larger allowance of prose in his daily study, before realising that as someone who has turned to poetry herself when in a state of heartbreak, she is hardly the person to set a proper anti-romantic example. The poems to which Captain Bennock refers were the most popular works of the age, the narrative poems of Sir Walter Scott and Lord Byron. Marmion, A Tale of Flodden Field, was Scott's second major poem, published in 1808. Constable, his publisher, was so sure that it would be a bestseller that he offered a thousand guineas for the copyright unseen. Two years later, Scott published a follow-up, The Lady of the Lake, which sold in phenomenal numbers and made the Trossocks into a tourist destination." Byron saw that a long narrative poem with a romantic setting and a love story at the center would be a recipe for success. And between 1813 and 1815, he churned out his The Jower, The Bride of Abydos, Lara and The Corsair, which sold 10,000 copies on the day of publication. Set in the Mediterranean and full of bloodthirsty pirates and gorgeous swooning women, not to mention the odd vampire, These Turkish tales inaugurated a fashion for what Byron called Orientalism. Here he is dressing the part for a portrait. And here he is mocking his own success in the short satirical poem Beppo, in which he tried out the witty new style that he would perfect in Don Juan. Oh, that I had the art of easy writing, which should be easy reading. How quickly would I print the world delighting, a Grecian, Syrian or Assyrian tale, and sell you mixed with Western sentimentalism some samples of the finest Orientalism. Jane Austen returned to the particular association between Byron's poetry and strong feeling in Sanditon, the novel on which she was working at the time of her death and that incidentally is currently being filmed as an ITV dramatisation with a script by Andrew Davis, who did the BBC Pride and Prejudice um, dramatisation. Sanderton, Jane Austen's last unfinished novel, is set in a new seaside resort. This was the period where sea bathing, uh, for health reasons, uh, became, became a great fashion. Indeed, Keats spent much of his time in places like Margate and the Isle of Wight, taking the sea water for his failing health. So here is Charlotte, the naive heroine of the novel, newly arrived in the fashionable seaside resort of Sanditon, and she's being chatted up by a character called Sir Edward Denham. Stationing himself close by her, he seemed to mean to detach her as much as possible from the rest of the party and to give her the whole of his conversation. He began in a tone of great taste and feeling, again that word feeling, to talk of the sea and the seashore and ran with energy through all the usual phrases employed in praise of their sublimity and descriptive of the undescribable emotions they excite in the mind of sensibility. Uh, brilliantly typical of Jane Austen, of course, descriptive of the undescribable Sensibility that key idea of the age which Austen had previously satirised in Sense and Sensibility. Sir Edward has clearly been reading a lot of Byron. His marine language is shaped by Byron's sea poetry. Childe Harold's Pilgrimage, the poem that really made Byron famous, and the Turkish tales are all set predominantly at sea. Sir Edward has no real experience of the sea which of course was something Jane Austen knew a lot about thanks to her brothers who had been distinguished sailors serving in the Royal Navy throughout the Napoleonic Wars. She knew from family letters what seafaring was really like, but Sir Edward has a strictly poetic view of the matter. The terrific grandeur of the ocean in a storm, its glass surface in a calm, its gulls and its samphire, Last time I looked, you didn't find Samphire out at sea. And the deep fathoms of its abysses, its quick vicissitudes, its direful deceptions, its mariners tempting it in sunshine and overwhelmed by the sudden tempest, all were eagerly and fluently touched. Rather commonplace, perhaps, but doing very well from the lips of a handsome Sir Edward. And she could not but think him a man of feeling, the phrase again, till he began to stagger her by the number of his quotations, and the bewilderment of some of his sentences. Do you remember, said he, Scott's beautiful lines of the sea? Oh, what a description they convey. They are never out of my thoughts when I walk here. That man who can read them unmoved must have the nerves of an assassin. Heaven defend me from meeting such a man unarmed. But Charlotte is a reader of poetry too. (laughs) What description do you mean, said Charlotte? I remember none at this moment of the sea in either of Scott's poems. Do you not indeed? nor can I exactly recall the beginning at this moment, but you cannot have forgotten his description of woman. Oh, woman in our hours of East, delicious, delicious. Had he written nothing more, he would have been immortal. Sir Edward has changed the subject because he has misremembered. It was Byron, not Scott, who wrote memorable lines about the sea such as the opening of that bestseller, The Corsair. Er, the glad waters of the dark blue sea, our thoughts as boundless and our souls as free, far as the breeze can bear, the billows foam. Austen actually quoted that phrase, Dark Blue Seas, in Persuasion. And indeed, one of my favourite remarks in her letters is, I have read The Corsair, mended my petticoat and have nothing else to do. For Sir Edward, accuracy of attribution does not matter. Poetry is all about extremity of passion. On he goes. If ever there was a man who felt it was Burns, Montgomery, a forgotten romantic poet, Montgomery has all the fire of poetry. Wordsworth has the true soul of it. Campbell, poet actually admired by Byron, Campbell in his pleasures of hope has touched the extreme of our sensations, that word again, like angels visits few and far between. Can you conceive anything more subduing, more melting, more fraught with the deep sublime than that line? But Burns, I confess my sense of his preeminence, Miss Hayward. If Scott has a fault, it is want of passion, tender, elegant, descriptive, but tame. The man who cannot do justice to the attributes of woman is my contempt. Sometimes, indeed, a flash of feeling seems to irradiate him, as in the lines we were speaking of, O oh, woman in our hours of ease. So now he's gone from saying that Scott is immortal alone for what he writes about woman to, to saying that actually he's not very good writing about women. But Burns is always on fire. His soul was the altar in which lovely woman sat enshrined. His spirit truly breathed the immortal incense which is her due. Austen, though, through her heroine Charlotte, is troubled by the relationship between the poetry and the author. Burns was notorious for drunkenness and sexual promiscuity. I have read several of Burns's poems with great delight, said Charlotte as soon as she had time to speak. But I am not poetic enough to separate a man's poetry entirely from his character. And poor Bernsey's known irregularities greatly interrupt my enjoyment of his lines. I have difficulty in depending on the truth of his feelings as a lover. And of course, that's a great Jane Austen theme, isn't it? Between the differences between the men for whom there is truth in their feelings as a lover and those who are simply out to seduce. I have not faith in the sincerity of the affections of a man of his description. He felt and he wrote and he forgot. Oh, no, 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 exclaimed Sir Edward in an ecstasy. He was all ardor and truth. His genius and his susceptibilities might lead him into some aberrations, but who is perfect? It were hypercriticism, it were pseudophilosophy to expect from the soul of high-toned genius the grovelings of a common mind. The coruscations of talent elicited by impassioned feeling in the breast of man are perhaps incompatible with some of the prosaic decencies of life. Nor can you, loveliest Miss Hayward speaking with an air of deep sentiment, nor can any woman be a fair judge of what a man may be propelled to say, write or do by the sovereign impulses of illimitable ardour. This was very fine, but if Charlotte understood it at all, not very moral. And being moreover by no means pleased with his extraordinary style of compliment, she gravely answered, I really know nothing of the matter. This is a charming day. The wind, I fancy, must be southerly. Great English move, isn't it? If things are getting awkward, change the topic, talk about the weather. Happy, happy wind to engage Miss Haywood's thoughts. She began to think him downright silly. <laughs> Sir Edward Denham is an avid reader of Byron's Turkish tales with their grand passions, seductions and abductions. And they were hugely popular all across Europe. Here is one of the the French artist Delacroix's illustrations of the Bride of Abydos, in which a character called Selim falls in love with the girl he believes to be his half-sister, Zuleika. Max Beerbohm got the name for Zuleika Dobson from there. Um, And, of course, Byron was in love with his half-sister. So Sir Edward, uh, as a Byronic figure, decides to model himself on Samuel Richardson's seducer, Lovelace, who is a great hero of Byron's, the character, that is, who ends up raping the virtuous Clarissa in the most admired novel of the 18th century, a novel that Jane Austen uh, very, very much admired. Alas... Jane Austen's illness got worse Sanderton, she's writing in the last months of her life and she abandoned the novel just as the ridiculous Sir Edward was on the brink of seeking to seduce, abduct or rape uh, a virtuous young girl called Clara Breerton. The escapade would doubtless have ended in comic deflation rather than the darker consequences of the actions of Jane Austen's earlier seducer, George Wickham in Pride and Prejudice. The last we hear of Denham is that his attempt to outdo the villainy of Lovelace and the exotic orientalism of Byron's swashbuckling lovers has been somewhat thwarted by his lack of cash. If she could not be won by affection, he must carry her off. So if he can't seduce her, he's going to abduct her. He knew his business. Already had he many musings on the subject. If he were constrained so to act, he must naturally wish to strike out something new to exceed those who had gone before him. So in the novel, Lovelace abducts Clarissa and sort of takes her off to a secluded house in the country. Um, and so Sir so, so Edward thinks he must outdo that. Uh, it, it, to, to exceed those who had gone before him. He felt a strong curiosity to ascertain whether the neighbourhood of Timbuktu might not afford some solitary house adapted for Clara's reception. So Bahrain gets as far as uh, the, the Mediterranean, but he wants to go to Timbuktu. But the expense, alas, of measures in that masterly style was ill-suited to his purse, and prudence obliged him to prefer the quietest sort of ruin and disgrace for the object of his affections to the more renowned. Well, Jane Austen had no time for what, in a wonderful phrase, she called superfluity of sensation. Sensation, she thinks, is a malady that can lead not only to over-the-top poetry and dangerously destructive love affairs, but also to financially ruinous commercial enterprises of the kind in which the Parker family are engaging at Sanditon, and for that matter, to hypochondria, the Parkers were no doubt a family of imagination and quick feelings. And while the eldest brother found vent for his superfluity of sensation as a projector, that's his plan to set up a seaside resort and health spa, the sisters, his two sisters, were perhaps driven to dissipate theirs in the invention of odd complaints. They are pure hypochondriacs. So the character of Edward is Jane Austen's coruscating portrait of the figure whom we might call the Byronic reader. That exchange regarding the dissipated life of Burns, who had been safely dead for 20 years by the time Austen was writing Sanderton, is, I think, a displacement of an anxiety about Byron, who in April 1816 left England in disgrace, never to return following his scandalously high-profile divorce which was truly one of the public sensations of the age. Austen began Sanditon in January the following year when gossip about Byron was still hot in the press. And John Murray, the publisher she shared with Byron, had just published two new massive bestsellers by the exiled Lord, his continuation of Childe Harold's pilgrimage and The Prisoner of Chillon and other poems. In The Spirit of the Age, that wonderful collection of essays about the leading writers and thinkers of the Romantic period, William Hazlitt says this of Byron, "'Intensity is the great and prominent distinction "'of Lord Byron's writings. "'He seldom gets beyond force of style, "'nor has he produced any regular work or masterly whole. "'He does not prepare any plan beforehand, "'nor revise and retouch what he has written "'with polished accuracy.' His only object seems to be to stimulate himself and his readers for the moment, to keep both alive, to drive away ennui, to substitute a feverish and irritable state of excitement for listless indolence or even calm enjoyment. Here, Hazlitt nails Byron's dazzling but often slapdash style in the Turkish tales and suggests that what propels the poems is almost a kind of psychopathology to drive away ennui, to substitute a feverish and irritable state of excitement for listless indolence. It's actually a very similar analysis to that of Byron himself in the letter to Annabella Milbank um, I I read about poetry driving away boredom. Coordinate with this motivation was a projection of Byron's self into his poetry. You will perhaps perceive in parts a coincidence in my own state of mind with that of my hero, Byron said of The Jower, but he could equally well have said it of The Bride of Abydos or Lara or, for that matter, Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Byron's life provoked even more comment than his poetry. Indeed, of all English poets, Byron must be the one whose life has exercised most fascination and whose work has been most persistently subordinated to his biography. Some of the most celebrated romantic heroes are to be found in his poetry, but Byron himself is the quintessential romantic hero. The Victorian historian Thomas Babington Macaulay, reviewing a biography of the poet in the 1830s, noted shrewdly that... It is always difficult to separate the literary character of a man who lives in our own time from his personal character. It is peculiarly difficult to make this separation in the case of Lord Byron, for it is scarcely too much to say that Lord Byron never wrote without some reference, direct or indirect, to himself. The interest excited by the events of his life mingles itself in our minds, and probably in the minds of almost all our readers, with the interest which properly belongs to his works. All Byron's characters, Macaulay suggests, are essentially the same. The Byronic hero looks up to the sky or stands apart in gloomy contemplation. He is an exile from his own country. He moves in a sublime landscape. He is frowning, darkly dressed, with a piercing eye, a haggard expression, and just the occasional smile. I put up there one of the artist John Martin's illustrations from uh, Byron's dramatic poem Manfred and the brooding figure there could well be not just Manfred but Byron himself. Indeed Macaulay goes so far as to say that Lord Byron could exhibit only one man and only one woman. A man proud, moody, cynical with defiance on his brow and misery in his heart a scorner of his kind, implacable in revenge, yet capable of deep and strong affection. A woman, all softness and gentleness, loving to caress and be caressed, but capable of being transformed by passion into a tigress. This Byronic female, well represented by the characters of Zulaika in The Bride of Abydos and Medora in The Corsair, is very much a man's woman. She is also, of course, the kind of woman for whom Byron was always seeking among the hundreds he seduced and one whom he perhaps found in his last great love, Teresa Guiccioli. And of course, what Byron does in his comic Don Juan, his last great unfinished epic, is instead of having the brooding male figure, he has the innocent male. Byron's Don Juan is, as it were, the opposite of Don Giovanni. He's something of an innocent and it's all the women who are throwing themselves at him. Macaulay's analysis keeps returning, rightly, to the problem of Byron's own self. He was himself the beginning, the middle and the end of all his own poetry, the hero of every tale, the chief object in every landscape. So the wandering child Harold, the pirate's chief, Conrad the Corsair, Selim in love with his half-sister in The Bride of Abydos, Manfred in his alpine landscape, a crowd of other characters. They were universally considered to be loose incognitos of the poet himself. But as Macaulay suggests, there was a strong element of dramatic posing about the process. How far the character in which he exhibited himself was genuine and how far theatrical it would probably have puzzled himself to say. One factor which suggests that the Byronic hero was a theatrical pose, a projection into what the public wanted is the literary context in which he wrote. It was as much the case that his life imitated the art of the previous 30 or 40 years as that his art imitated his own life. The hero who is in despair, who is sick at heart, at war with society, who is characterized by pride, will and defiance, such a figure is in tune with the broader attributes of Romanticism that we have explored throughout this lecture series, going back to things I was saying about uh, figures uh, such as Goethe's sorrows of the young Werther, the Weltschmerz, the ennui, The wanderlust, the isolation, the central focus on the self and the will, the association with rebellion and revolution, the admiration for the Prometheus of classical mythology and the Satan of Milton's Paradise Lost. The literature we've been looking at is steeped in all these figures and it's as if Byron then brings these mythic figures to life. In the third canto of Child Harold's Pilgrimage, Byron introduces the ideas of fatal penitence and an unspecified sin which forces the protagonist from society. Now, he's writing this just after the, uh, the, the, the divorce, the scandal around his marriage. Uh, incest, perhaps worse, uh, were uh, were thought of in high society to be the reasons for uh, Annabella divorcing him. In that sense, the idea of the sin, the fatal penitence, we immediately think of Coleridge's ancient mariner. But Byron makes a virtue of isolation. His readers are intended to sympathise with the wanderers o'er eternity whose bark drives on and on and anchored ne'er shall be. Even in Don Juan, where he explicitly parodies and condemns the Wordsworthian pantheism of the fusion of self with sublime landscape, Byron still retains an image of himself as an isolated, eternal wanderer. In the wind's eye I have sailed and sail, but for the stars I own my telescope is dim. But at the least I have shunned the common shore and leaving land far out of sight would skim the ocean of eternity." The roar of breakers has not daunted my slight trim but still seaworthy skiff, and she may float where ships have foundered as doth many a boat. The sea voyage remains both the central mechanism and the central metaphor in Byron's poems. Given the importance of voyages, of the freedom given by travel, the key contrary image is imprisonment or being chained From our birth, he writes in Child Harold, the faculty divine is chained and tortured, cabined, cribbed, confined. The Bastille provided one crucial romantic image of imprisonment. And the most relevant of Byron's poems in this respect is The Prisoner of Chillon, the story of a man who is imprisoned for so long that he can hardly cope with liberty when it comes. My very chains and I grew friends. So much a long communion tends to make us what we are. Even I regained my freedom with a sigh. The subdued ending of that poem undercuts the sonnet that Byron prefixed to it, which is an attack on tyranny, a clarion call to the eternal spirit of the chainless mind, brightest in dungeons, liberty. Byron is aware that freedom may be dearly bought. He is wary of naive, idealistic political solutions. The Byronic hero is not only a mythic and literary type, he's also a figure in the contemporary world. The 18th century, with its emphasis on reason, community and common sense, was not, perhaps, an age of heroes. The Romantic era, with its rebelliousness, its upheavals, its emphasis on the individual, emphatically was... Writers were unstinting in their praise of men of action. George Washington, the Polish freedom fighter Kosciuszko, those great bad men, Robespierre and his crew, Horatio Nelson, and above all, Napoleon. Two years before The Prisoner of Chillon, Byron published an ode to, to Napoleon Bonaparte that simultaneously praised him as an action hero and exalted in his downfall after he had abused his energy and power. The ode turns on a typically Byronic image of our common mortality. Weighed in the balance, hero dust is vile as vulgar clay. Thy scales, mortality, are just to all that pass away. And the poem compares Napoleon to some of the archetypal rebels and exiles of literature and myth. Or like the thief of fire from heaven, would thou withstand the shock and share with him the unforgiven, his vulture and his rock? For doomed by God, by man accursed, and that last act, though not thy worst, the very fiend's arch mock, he in his fall preserved his pride, and if a mortal had as proudly died. The, the, The suggestion here is that Napoleon is somehow Prometheus and Satan rolled into one. For Byron's readers, the song to Inez in the first canto of his highly autobiographical *Child Harold's Pilgrimage would have conjured up a whole network of similar associations. Before the song, Child Harold is described as a wanderer on whose brow life-abhorring gloom had written cursed Cain's unresting doom. Byron wrote a play that told the story of Cain and Abel from Cain's point of view. But above all, Child Harold is characterised by his isolation. Still he beheld, nor mingled with the throng, but viewed them not with misanthropic hate. Fain would he now have joined the dance, the song, but who may smile that sinks beneath his fate? But then Child Harold sings the lyric to Inez, in which he refers to his sullen brow, the secret woe he bears, corroding joy and youth, his weariness, his exile, the hell within his heart. All this would have suggested to the reader that long tradition of famous and infamous rebels and exiles, especially as Childe Harold actually makes specific reference to one of them, the wandering Jew. It is that settled ceaseless gloom the fabled Hebrew wanderer bore that will not look beyond the tomb but cannot hope for rest before. Wordsworth and Coleridge were also fascinated by the figure of the wandering Jew, the original plan for the ancient mariner was for them to jointly write a poem on exactly that theme. The plan didn't work out. Coleridge wrote the mariner instead. The ceaseless gloom cannot hope for rest. It's the characteristic voice of Byron in his high romantic mood. The Byron who awoke on the publication of Childe Harold to find himself famous and whose influence on 19th century European romanticism was so massive. Lord Byron was the original celebrity author. His death on his way to fight for the freedom of Greece made international headlines. In a very real sense, high romanticism died with him. The next generation of writers were not helped by a financial recession which put publishers out of business and all but killed the market for poetry. When I was writing the biography of the younger romantic poet John Clare, I found a very poignant letter when he was trying to get One of his books published and the publisher wrote back and said, there's just no market for poetry now. If you want to get published, write me a cookbook. (laughs) Byron's funeral procession in which his body was taken through the streets of London to weeping crowds and then north to his family seat in the Midlands along roads lined with mourners who threw flowers upon the moving coffin reads like an uncanny premonition of the day of Princess Diana's funeral. But Byron's literary life did not end with his funeral. At Pushkin's house in St. Petersburg, there is an inscribed copy of Byron, presented to Pushkin by the admirer of both, Adam Mikiewicz, Pushkin, the Russian national poet, Mikiewicz, the Polish national poet. Both idolized Byron. The cult of Byron, like the Romantic movement itself, lived on through the 19th century and across Europe. It is in this that we see Romanticism as playing a role in the making of the modern nation state and our modern sensibilities. And the spirit of the movement lived on through the 20th century. The association of creativity with genius, youth, loose living and early death has become embedded in popular culture. Remember how I've told you of the suicide or overdose of Chatterton of Byron dying of romantic fever at Missolongi, of Shelley drowned, Keats coughing his last with consumption behind the Spanish steppes in Rome. There was also Letitia Landon, known as the female Baron, taking prussic acid on the coast of West Africa. All answer to the spirit of romantic mortality. So let me close with an evocation of that spirit and an an opportunity to give Shelley his due and indeed, as last month, to remember the death of Keats. It is 1969, the year after the summer of love. The celebrity poet has been replaced by the celebrity rock star. Mick Jagger has a Byronic swagger. In loose, white-fitting Regency smock, he clambers onto the stage in Hyde Park in front of an audience of more than 60,000. Before he sings, he remembers Brian Jones, the founder and original lead guitarist of the Rolling Stones, discovered dead in his swimming pool as Shelley was discovered dead off Le Ricci at the age of just 27. <laughs>
1: will you just cool it just for a minute because I really would like to say something for Brian and I really dig it if you would be with us when I well, what I'm gonna say I really I really don't know how to do this sort of thing but I'm gonna try and I hope you can just just cool it just before we start and I really hope if you do I really appreciate it if God could just So a few words, what I think I feel about Brian, and I'm sure you do, and what we feel about him just going when we didn't expect him to. Okay, Okay, are you going to be quiet or not? Okay. I just want to say something that was written by Shelley, and I think it goes with what happened to Brian. Peace. Peace, he is not dead, he does not sleep. He has awakened from the dreams of life. It's we that are lost in stormy visions and keep with phantoms an unprofitable strife. And in a mad trance we strike with a spirit's knife, invulnerable nothing. We decay like corpses in the charnel. Fear and grief convulse us. And consume us day by day and cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay. The one remains, the many change and pass, heaven's light forever shines, earth's shadows fly, life like a dome of many colored glass stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die, And if thou wouldst be with that which thou dost seek, follow, where all is fled. All right!
0: Sixties have passed, but the influence of romanticism remains. Shelley's Adonius reminds us that writers achieve a kind of immortality every time someone reads their work. Like Byron, Shelley voyaged only briefly through the stormy sea of life. My spirit's bark is driven far from the shore. I am born darkly, fearfully afar. But he endures, beating on, boat against the current, borne forward ceaselessly into the future, in the knowledge that as he has given immortality to Keats in that poem, others will one day give immortality to him, as Jagger did that day in High Park, and as I have sought to do for Wordsworth and Coleridge, for Keats and Byron too, as for Shakespeare last year, in my lectures as Gresham Professor of Rhetoric. The soul of Adonius, with the other romantic poets, and with Shakespeare himself, like a star, beacons from the abode where the eternal are. Thank you.